Volume 1, Book 5, Chapters 35 through 43 of The Life of Apollonius of Tyana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Apollonius of Tyana by Flavius Philostratus. Translated by F. C. Coneybear. Volume 1, Book 5. Chapter 35 there followed a spell of silence during which the emperor's countenance betrayed contending emotions for though he was an absolute ruler both in title and in fact it looked as if they were trying to divert him from his resolution to remain such and accordingly apollonius remarked it seems to me you are mistaken in trying to cancel a monarchical policy when it is already a foregone conclusion and that you indulge a garrulity as childish as it is in such a crisis idle. Were it I that had stepped into such a position of influence as he has, and were I, when taking counsel about what good I could do to the world, treated to such advice as you now give, your arguments would carry some force, for philosophic aphorisms might amend the philosophically minded of your listeners. But, as it is a consul and a man accustomed to rule, whom you pretend to advise, one moreover, over whom ruin impends, if he fall from power, need we carp, if instead of rejecting the gifts of fortune, he welcomes them when they come, and only deliberates how to make a discreet use of what is his own? Let us take a similar case. Suppose we saw an athlete, well endowed with courage and stature, and by his well-knit frame marked out as a winner in the Olympic contest, suppose we approached him when he was already on his way thither through arcadia and while encouraging him to face his rivals yet insisted that in the event of his winning the prize he must not allow himself to be proclaimed the victor nor consent to wear the wreath of wild olive should we not be set down as imbeciles mocking at one another's labors similarly when we regard the eminent man before us and think of the enormous army at his disposal, of the glint of their brazen arms, of his clouds of cavalry, of his own personal qualities, of his generosity, self-restraint, of his fitness to attain his objects. Ought we not to send him forward on the path that leads to his goal, with favoring encouragement and with more auspicious pledges for his future than these you have recorded? For there is another thing that you have forgotten that he is the father of two sons who are already in command of armies and whose deepest enmity he will incur if he does not bequeath the empire to them is he not confronted by the alternative of embroiling himself in hostilities with his own family if however he accepts the throne he will have the devoted service of his own children they will lean on him and he on them using them as his bodyguard and by his use as a bodyguard not hired by money, nor levied by force, nor feigning loyalty with their faces only, but attached to him by bonds of natural instinct and true affection. For myself, I care little about constitutions, seeing that my life is governed by the gods, but I do not like to see the human flock perish for want of a shepherd at once just and moderate, for just a single man, preeminent in virtue, 
transforms a democracy into the guise of a government of a single man who is the best. So the government of one man, if it provides all around for the welfare of the community, is popular government. You did not, we are told, help to depose Nero. And did you, Euphrates, or you, Dion? Did I myself? However, no one finds fault with us for that, nor regards us as cowardly because, after philosophers have destroyed a thousand tyrannies, we have missed the glory of striking a blow for liberty. Not but that, as regards myself, I did take the field against Nero, and in response to several malignant accusations, assailed his cutthroat to gilliness to his face. And the aid I rendered to Vindex in the western half of the empire was, I hardly need say, in the nature of a redoubt raised against Nero. But I should not on that account claim for myself the honor of having pulled down that tyrant any more than I should regard yourselves as falling short of the philosopher's ideal of courage and constancy, because you did nothing of the sort. For a man, then, of philosophic habit, it is enough that he should say what he really thinks. But he will, I imagine, take care not to talk like a fool or a madman. For a council, on the other hand, who designs to depose a tyrant, the first requisite is plenty of deliberation, with a view to conceal his plans till they are ripe for action. And the second is a suitable pretense to save him from the reproach of breaking his oath for before he dreams of resorting to arms against the man who appointed him general, and whose welfare he swore to safeguard in the council chamber and on the field, he must surely, in self-defense, furnish heaven with proof that he perjures himself in the cause of religion. He will also need many friends, if he is not to approach the enterprise unfenced and unfortified, and also all the money he can get, so as to be able to win over the men in power, the more so as he attacks a man who commands the resources of the entire earth. All this demands no end of care, no end of time, and you may take all this as you like, for we are not called upon to sit in judgment on ambitions which he may possibly have entertained, but in which fortune refused to second him, even when he came to fight for them. What answer, however, will you make to the following proposition? Here is one who yesterday assumed the throne, who accepted the crown offered by the cities here in the temples around us, whose rescripts are as brilliant as they are ungrudging. Do you bid him issue a proclamation today to the effect that for the future he retires into private life and only assumed the reins of government in an excess of madness? as, if he carries through the policy on which he is resolved, he will confirm the loyalty of the guards relying on whom he first entertained it. So, if he falters and departs from it, he will find an enemy in every one whom from that moment he must mistrust. Chapter 36 The emperor listened gladly to the above, and remarked, If you were the tenant of my breast, you could not more accurately report my inmost thoughts. Tis yourself, then, I will follow, for every word which falls from your lips I regard as inspired. Therefore instruct me, I pray, in all the duties of a good king. 
Apollonius answered, You ask of me a lore which cannot be imparted by any teacher, for kingship is at once the greatest of human attainments, and not to be taught. However, I will mention you all the things which, if you do them, you will, in my opinion, do wisely. Look not on that which is laid by as wealth, for how is it better than so much sand drifted no matter from whence, nor on what flows into your coffers from populations racked by the tax-gatherer? For gold lacks luster and is mere dross if it be wrung from men's tears. If you make better use of your wealth than your sovereign did, if you employ it in succoring the poor, at the same time that you render your wealth secure for the rich. Tremble before the very absoluteness of your prerogative, for so you will exercise it with the greater moderation. Mow not down the loftier stocks which overtop the rest, for this maxim of Aristotle's is unjust. But try, rather, to pluck dissatisfaction out of men's hearts, as you would tares out of the cornfields, and inspire awe of yourself in revolutionists less by actual punishment than by showing them that they will not go unpunished. Let the law govern you as well as them, O king, for you will be all the wiser as a legislator for so holding the laws in respect. Reverence the gods more than ever before, for you have received great blessings at their hands, and have still great ones to pray for. In what appertains to your prerogative, act as a sovereign. In what to your own person, as a private citizen. About dice and drink and dissipation, and the necessity of abhorring these vices, why need I tender you any advice? Who, they say, never approved of them, even in youth? You have, my sovereign, two sons, both, they say, of generous disposition. Let them before all obey your authority, for your faults will be charged to your account. Let your disciplining of them even proceed to the length of threatening not to bequeath them your throne, unless they remain good men and honest. Otherwise, they will be prone to regard it not as a reward of excellence, so much as a mere heritage. As for the pleasures which have made of Rome their home and residence, and they are many, I would advise you, my sovereign, to use much discretion in suppressing them. For it is not easy to convert an entire people on a sudden to a wisdom and temperance. But you must feel your way, and instill order and rhythm in their characters, step by step, partly by open, partly by secret correction. Let us put an end to pride and luxury on the part of the freedmen and slaves whom your high position assigns to you, by accustoming them to think all the more humbly of themselves, because their master is so powerful. There remains only one topic to address you on. It concerns the governors sent out to rule the provinces. Of those you will yourself select, I need say nothing, for I am sure you will assign commands by merit. I only refer to those who will acquire them by lot. In their case, too, I maintain, those only should be sent out to the various provinces so obtained who are in sympathy, so far as the symptom of appointing by lot allows of it, with the populations they will rule. 
I mean that over Hellenists should be set men who can speak Greek, and Romans over those who can speak that language or dialects allied to it. I will tell you what made me think of this. During the period in which I lived in the Peloponnese Hellas, was governed by a man who knew as little of the Hellenists and their affairs as they understood of his. What was the result? He was, in his mistakes, as much sinned against as sinner, for his assessors, and those who shared with him judicial authority, trafficked in justice, and abused his authority, as if he had been not their governor, but their slave. This, my sovereign, is all that occurs to me today. But if anything else should come into my mind, we can hold another interview. So now, apply yourself to the duties of your throne, lest your subjects accuse you of indolence. Chapter 37 Euphrates declared his assent to all these conclusions. For, said he, what can I gain by continuing to oppose such teaching? But, O oh, my sovereign, I have only one thing left to say, and that is that while you approve and countenance that philosophy which accords with nature, you should have nothing to do with that which affects a secret intercourse with the gods. For we are easily puffed up by the many absurdities this lying philosophy falsely ascribes to providence. The above remark was aimed at Apollonius, who, however, without paying any attention to it, departed with his companions as soon as he had ended his discourse, and Euphrates would have taken further liberties with his character. Only the emperor noticed it, and put him aside by saying, Call in those who have business with the government, and let my counsel resume its usual form. Thus, Euphrates failed to see that he only prejudiced himself, and gained with the emperor the reputation of being a jealous and insolent fellow, who aired these sentiments in favor of democracy, not because he really entertained them, but only by way of contradicting the opinions of Apollonius held in regard to the empire. Notwithstanding, the emperor did not cast him off or show any resentment at his opinions. As for Dion, he did not cease to be fond of him, though he regarded his seconding the opinions of Euphrates. For Dion was a delightful conversationalist, and always declined to quarrel. He, moreover, imparted to his discourses that sort of charm which exhales from the perfumes at a sacrifice. And he had also, better than any living man, the talent to exempor oratory. Apollonius, the emperor not merely loved for his own sake, but was ever ready to listen to his accounts of antiquity, to his descriptions of the Indian Freotes, and to his graphic stories of the rivers of India and of the animals that inhabit it, above all, to the forecasts and revelations imparted to him by the gods concerning the future of the empire. On quitting Egypt, after settling and rejuvenating the country, he invited Apollonius to share his voyage, but after the latter declined, on the ground that he had not yet seen the whole extent of Egypt, and had not yet visited or conversed with the naked sages of that land, whose wisdom he was very anxious to compare with that of India. Nor, he added, have I drunk of the sources of the Nile, 
the emperor understood that he was about to set out for ethiopia and said will you not bear me in mind i will indeed replied the sage if you continue to be a good sovereign and mindful of yourself chapter thirty eight thereafter the emperor offered his sacrifices in the temple and publicly promised him presents but apollonius as if he had a favor to ask said and what presents o king will you give me he replied ten now and when you have come to rome everything i have and apollonius answered then i must husband your riches as if they were my own and not squander in the present what is hereafter to be reserved to me in its entirety but i pray you o king to attend rather to these gentlemen here for they look as if they wanted something and suiting his words he pointed to euphrates and his friends the emperor accordingly pressed them to ask boldly what they desired whereupon dion with a blush said reconcile me o king with apollonius my teacher for that i lately ventured to oppose him in argument for never till now have i ventured to contradict him the emperor approving said as long ago as yesterday i asked for this favor and it is already granted but do you ask for some gift lasthenes replied dion of apamia a bithynian city who was my companion in philosophy fell in love with a uniform and took to a soldier's life now he says he longs afresh to wear the sage's cloak so would you let him off for the service for that is the extent of his own request and you will confer on me the privilege of turning him into a saint and on him the liberty of living as he wishes to let him be released said the emperor but i confer on him the rights of a veteran since he is equally fond of wisdom and of yourself next the emperor turned to euphrates who had drawn up a letter embodying his requests and held it out in expectation that his sovereign would peruse it in private but the latter was determined to expose him to criticism so he read it out loud before everyone it was found to contain various petitions some for himself some for others and of the presents asked some consisted of cash down and others of credit notes whereupon apollonius with a laugh remarked then your intention of asking a monarch for all this did not prevent you from giving him that good advice in favor of democracy chapter thirty nine such i find was the occasion of the quarrel between apollonius and euphrates and after the emperor had departed they openly attacked one another euphrates in his anger resorting to coarse insults which his antagonist met in a philosophical spirit only refuting him his accusations i may remark of euphrates to the effect that his conduct violated the decencies of the philosophical life can be learned from the epistles apollonius addressed to him for they are not a few for myself i herewith dismiss this gentleman for it is no part of my scheme to say ill of him but only to furnish with a life of apollonius those who are as yet ignorant as to the tale of the stick which he is said to have brandished against apollonius when he was discoursing though without applying it 
most people attribute his having so refrained from the commanding dignity of the man he was about to strike but i prefer to set it down to the good sense of the would-be striker and to think that it was that which enabled him to overcome an angry impulse which had all but overmastered him chapter forty dion's philosophy struck apollonius as being too rhetorical and overmuch adapted to please and flatter and that is why he addressed to him by way of correction the words you should use a pipe and a lyre if you want to tickle men's senses and not speech and in many passages of his letters to dion he censures his use of words to captivate the crowd chapter forty one i must also explain how it came about that he never approached the emperor again nor visited him after their encounter in egypt although the latter invited him and wrote often to him in that sense the fact is nero restored the liberties of hellas with a wisdom and moderation quite alien to his character and the cities regained their doric and attic characteristics and a general rejuvenescence accompanied the institution among them of a peace and harmony such as not even ancient hellas ever enjoyed vespasian however on his arrival in the country took away her liberty alleging their factiousness and other pretexts hardly justifying such extreme severity this policy seemed not only to those who suffered by it but to apollonius as well of a harshness quite out of keeping with a royal temper and character and accordingly he addressed the following letters to the emperor apollonius to the emperor vespasian greeting you have they say enslaved hellas and you imagine you have excelled xerxes you are mistaken you have only fallen below nero for the latter held our liberties in his hand and respected them farewell to the same you have taken such a dislike to the hellenists that you have enslaved them although they were free what then do you want with my company farewell to the same nero freed the hellenists in play but you have enslaved them in all seriousness farewell such were the grounds of apollonius taking a dislike to vespasian however when he heard of the excellence of his subsequent acts of government he made no attempt to conceal his satisfaction but looked at it in the light of a benefaction conferred on himself chapter forty two the following incident also of apollonius's stay in egypt was thought remarkable there was a man led a tame lion about by a string as if it had been a dog and the animal not only fawned upon him but on any one who approached it it went collecting alms all round the towns and was admitted even in the temples being a pure animal for it never licked up the blood of the victims nor pounced upon them when they were being flayed and cut up but lived upon honey cakes and bread and dried fruits and cooked meats and you also came on it drinking wine without changing its character one day it came up to apollonius when he was sitting in the temples and whined and fawned at his knees and begged of him more earnestly than it had ever done of anybody 
the bystanders imagined it wanted some solid reward but apollonius exclaimed this lion is begging me to make you understand that a human soul is within him the soul namely of amasis the king of egypt in the province of sais and when the lion heard that he gave a piteous and plaintive roar and crouching down began to lament shedding tears thereupon apollonius stroked him and said i think the lion ought to be sent to leontopolis and dedicated to the temple there for i consider it wrong that a king who has been changed into the most kingly of beasts should go about begging like any human mendicant in consequence the priests met and offered sacrifice to amasis and having decorated the animal with a collar and ribbons they conveyed him up country into egypt with pipings hymns and songs composed in his honour chapter forty three having had enough of alexandria the sage set out for egypt and ethiopia to visit the naked sages menippus then as he was by now a qualified disputant and remarkably outspoken he left behind to watch euphrates and perceiving that dioscorides had not a strong enough constitution for foreign travel he dissuaded him from undertaking the journey the rest of the company he mustered for though some had left him in aricia many others had subsequently joined him and he explained to them about his impending journey and began as follows i must needs preface in olympic wise my address to you my brave friends and the following is an olympic exordium when the olympic games are coming on the people of els train the athletes for thirty days in their own country likewise when the pythian games approach the natives of delphi and when the isthmian the corinthians assemble and say go now into the arena and prove yourselves men worthy of victory the aliens however on their way to olympia address the athletes thus if you have labored so hard as to be entitled to go to olympia and have banished all sloth and cowardice from your lives then march boldly on but as for those who have not so trained themselves let them depart whithersoever they like the companions of the sage understood his meaning and about twenty of them remained with menippus but the rest ten in number i believe offered prayer to the gods and having sacrificed such an offering as men offer when they embark for a voyage they departed straight for the pyramids mounted on camels and keeping the nile on their right hand in several places they took boats across the river in order to visit every site on it for there was not a city fane or sacred site in egypt that they passed by without discussion for at each they either learned or taught some holy story so that any ship on which apollonius embarked resembled the sacred galley of a religious legation end of book five chapters thirty five through forty three end of volume one